This is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And it is the week before Christmas. And we are on Zoom because sickness has once again broken out in Yolando's house. And so we did not take a walk or a run today, but... um, but we've been talking for a long time, so there's that. Well, and I'm hoping my child feels better because we really want to travel for Christmas, but we may be staying at home. Um, I was talking to our friend Elizabeth, who confessed proudly to me that the last time you all were together, she was joking and saying that this podcast should be called two pastors take a walk and one of them makes a podcast because I am the big big talker and I would just like to say fair it's fair well fair in your defense in your defense when we started recording this podcast we said we wanted it to be a reflection of our like our real life conversations, like when we get together. This is our we, real friendship. No, like <laughs> I, I talk a little less and that's okay. And that's, that's how you're wired. It's how I'm wired and it works. Right. <laughs> it works. Mm-hmm. I just thought, I just thought it was funny and needed. I just felt like I needed to let everyone know that I'm in on the joke. <laughs> and this is, well, this is my listen, authentic self, and this is the way here, the introvert-extrovert pairing can work well. That's right. And there's a difference between an extrovert who is self-aware, like you are, and an extrovert who is not self-aware. An extrovert who is not self-aware, they're they're more challenging to deal with. <laughs> it's just if everybody knew how much I wanted to say and didn't say, they would be impressed. Is all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, <laughs> what is astonishing you? Well, Sunday after worship, I was stopped by a young man who is not a member of our congregation. Who was in worship that day, but he's not a member. I used to be his pastor many years ago when he was uh, half my height uh, and a a child, and now he is three inches taller than me. Uh, He's in his late teen years, and he and his brother and uh, cousin came to me, and they're all these, you know, wonderful young men, and he came to talk to me because he is at a place where he is struggling with doubt. He's struggling with the faith. He's struggling with what's true. And uh, he said, you know, so much of what he has received in terms of Christianity at this point in his life seems like a fairy tale. And he wants to believe, but he's wrestling. And uh, it was a, (laughs) it may have been the holiest thing that happened that day. But uh, I just really felt the presence of God in that conversation. Uh, Not that I laid upon him some great wisdom from on high, 
but I enjoyed affirming where he was. Like he is sincerely wrestling with truth. And I believe that he will come out on the other side, a more mature believer. There are going to be some things that he leaves behind. There are going to be some things that he has inherited um, in the faith that he's going to decide that he doesn't believe anymore. And that's okay. Like, for example, he's wrestling with, okay, do I have to believe that Jonah was in the belly of the well three days, literally, to be a true Christian? Do I have to believe, like we see in the movies, when the Israelites left Egypt, that there was a huge, tall wall of water, the Red Sea, and that they walked through? Or can I believe, as um, archaeologists and some scientists tell us, that it's the sea of reeds, and it was a much more shallow body of water. Can I can I believe that and still um, be a Christian? And that tides, like t- that, it was still influenced by the tides, and so there really, yes. literally, could have been a moment where they came and the tide shifted, and they were able to pass through, and then, yeah. It's well, what astonished me in the conversation is two things. Number one, he asked me a very pointed question that I don't think I've ever been asked, or at least not in my recent memory. And he asked me, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe? And it just, it caught me off guard in a good Mm -hmm. and beautiful way. I was like, hmm, no one has ever asked me that. It's just this assumption because you're a pastor and of course you believe, but, but why do you believe? And um, I shared with him a period when I was in school, I was studying for ministry and had a period where I thought I was an atheist and for a minute declared myself to no longer believe in God. And I said to him, the thing that I remember most, I was walking across the campus blue sky. It was a beautiful spring day. And when I said out loud, I was walking alone. I don't believe anymore. Like the heavens didn't open up and God didn't strike me down. There wasn't, there was a, there was a grace to walk through my doubt. And um, I, I, I love that. I love that period of, of wrestling. And so again, I affirmed him in his wrestling But then I came back to the faith because I also went through a period of studying world religions and comparing, and I came to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. And he asked me, well, what's essential to you? I said, really, there's one essential, and that is Jesus rose from the dead. Everything else we can debate. We can debate evolution. You can believe in evolution or not. It's not, it's not um, uh, an essential for me. But ultimately, I believe because there's this work of the spirit that confirms, like, I don't have any convincing proofs. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not, I can't give you or anyone else the complete sealed logic of here is the Christian faith, and this is why you should believe. I'm not an apologist. I have some evidence, 
And then ultimately, it's the work of the Spirit that kind of confirms that, that does confirm that for me. And I believe that in this young man's wrestling, the Spirit will do the same because he is sincerely wrestling. I mean, that's such a beautiful and holy encounter and and such a beautiful, because I think a lot of people come to me, to us, with some version of the same question, which is sort of like, I want to believe but I'm not sure I do. And I, and, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, friend, if you want to believe, then you do. <laughs> I mean, because belief is not about understanding and it's not about experiencing certainty. And I don't have any faith in my understanding of God. I have faith in God. Like I was leading that Bible study on Sunday night um, with some folks um, who, who live near the church and, um, I, you know, it was kind of the first time. And I was like, listen, I just want you all to know that, um, you know, I encounter God through the revelation of scripture. So I experience the Bible to be very holy. Um, but I don't, but the Bible is not God. Like I don't worship this book. Like there is a, a reality and an ultimacy beyond this sacred scripture, which doesn't mean I don't think it's sacred. I'm just saying like when we're talking about, and you know, the word of God, we call the Bible, the word of God, and that's fine. But the Bible itself says the word of God is Jesus. So I just think so much, we spend so much time in our religious communities doing gatekeeping and trying to help people know, like, am I in or am I out? And and sort of what is enough and what's not enough and sort of what kind of intellectual posture do I need to assume to earn belonging, salvation, righteousness? I mean, that's just such a um, weird enlightenment, you know, I um, expression of what it means to walk in relationship with God. And, you know, for me, the reason I am a Christian um, is because I experience life in Jesus. And, and, you know, Brian Zond has one of his books is called Beauty Will Save the World. And I think, you know, to me, when I think about the revelation of God that comes to me in seeing Jesus, right? Like we, that, that it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus that show me who God is like I believe in that like that is where my hope comes from that is what I want to be shaped by both in my life and in my identity like a lot of I think belief for me is saying where do I want to stand like who do I want to be my Lord like everyone is um you know, puts their allegiance and dedicates and devotes their lives to something like that's my choice. So, I mean, you know, there's this whole debate about you need to understand scriptural in a scripture in a certain way, i.e. literally in order to be a quote, real believer. And I just think, I mean, a, there's, there is a truth for me that is a deeper truth than literalism, right? Like for most people, that's their highest thing is I believe that the Bible is literally true. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people who can, that's fine. You can think that, but your life is poison, not medicine, right? And you use your 
understanding of scripture, like you wear it like a badge and you use it to hurt people. And the way, I mean, you can say that you intellectually assent to some facts in the ancient history, but if the way you live your life isn't formed by that, like you can say you believe that Jonah spent three days in the whale of a fish, but you also believe that your enemies are garbage and God's going to smite them. And I'm going to say, mm, you don't believe in the revelation of Jonah then. You might believe that he spent three days in a fish, but you don't believe the truth um, that that this piece of scripture actually exists to proclaim. And a lot of times our desire to make literalism the standard is really convenient because it allows us to avoid making the sacrifices and conforming our lives to the real values exposed in scripture, which is we're not righteous like we think we are. <laughs> we are not God's precious personal favorites who deserve the best of everything. God's ways are not our ways, like suffering is a part of life in this fallen world and God will be with us in suffering. And sometimes God will shield us from suffering, but bad things do happen to people who are loved by God because bad things happen to people and all people are loved by God. So like just, you know, the Bible doesn't say what we want it to say. It doesn't show God to be the God that we want to worship. And so we say, well, I believe the Bible is literally true and that's all that's required of me. And I continue to go out and live in the world for myself, you know, thinking that violence is redemptive and might makes right. But I'm a, but I'm a real Christian because I believe this about Jonah and that about the parting of the Red Sea. Like, I mean, you can think that if you want to, but I don't. Um, and I, you know, on Sunday we were talking about like purity is not a posture of bodies, but it's a posture of the heart. And I think the same thing is true for belief. It's not a posture of your mind. It's a, it's a gift of your heart. Um, and so well, I encouraged him to really lean into what ultimate question is he trying to answer? You know, I said to him for his parents' generation and probably his grandparents' generation, their question was probably, <coughs> what, what do I need to do to go to heaven when I die? And if that was their ultimate question, he has inherited a faith to answer that question. If that's not the question he's answering, then the answers he's been given don't quite make sense. Uh, for right. my own like, life, much in the way that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, for my own life, I remember as a, a teenager, someone in my early 20s, I felt a profound sense of. Um, wanting to be a better human being. I knew that deep within me, you know, flawed, uh, not, not the person created to be. And I found Jesus to be the way uh, to true humanity. But that's the question I was seeking to answer. And I, I encouraged him to really drill down into, okay, what are you really trying to get at? Well, and I think even if you look at scripture itself, you'll see that like, you know, the Torah was a revelation of God given to people when they were trying to understand who they were as the chosen people and how to live as God's peculiar people, salt and light to the world. Then, you know, after the exile you and right before, 
God's revelation through the prophets comes to say to people like, hey, you don't understand what your chosenness is. And, you know, this, it's a different question or, you know, the, the portions of the prophets that speak to the people while they're living in exile, they're answering the question, well, how can we be the people of God if we don't live in the promised land? How can I worship God if I can't go to the temple and make a sacrifice, right? So, I mean, it's just God's revelation giving truth for the lived experiences of people where they are. And like, I do happen to believe that, you know, scripture is an exalted form of written truth that that can speak to people across the generations in all different situations in life. But I mean, even within that record of the revelation of the Holy Spirit, you'll see that in different stages, in different experiences, God gave people different um, portions of the truth in order to guide them with the real struggle they were having right then. So, you know, the people when they were crying out for freedom, living as slaves in Egypt, needed a revelation of God, the liberator who heard them and chose them and set them apart. The people who later on employed slaves to build a temple to the God who liberated them, they needed a different word of the Lord because, uh, and so I, you know, I think that idea of just saying, sometimes we're so worried about whether or not we are safe with God, that we tend to turn to human authorities and say, just tell me what to think. Just tell me what to believe and I'll believe it. And I mean, I've, I've been there and I think, you know, the, the real um, holy work of pastors is just to say, here's, here's what I believe. God is real. God is intimately involved and present in your life. And in this time of deconstruction, disorientation. This isn't you falling away from God. This is you falling into God. So trust the Holy Spirit. And if that brings you out of line with the received tradition, well, I mean, scripture itself has lots to say about how the spirit of God moves beyond traditions and, and how human understanding is fallen, but it is not limiting for God's desires and purposes for humanity. Um, But I think that's why it's really tricky for us as pastors to realize like, you know, I believe that the institution of church matters, obviously. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the body of Christ exists to help people come into relationship with Jesus. And so, you know, sometimes we sort of give people the answers they look like looking for so that they will come and align themselves with our church because our church has institutional needs. And we have to be willing to say like, Hey, I don't have a rubric for you. And so if you're looking for a leader who will say, think this, this, and this, do this, this, and this, and you get to belong, I won't be that leader for you because that's not, that's not the abundant life that Jesus died to give to and lived to give you. What astonished me in that, and another thing that astonished me in that conversation was that he expressed like real appreciation just for the opportunity to express his doubt. Because at first, my anxiety rose up thinking I need to give him some very clear answers and some very clear direction. It needs to be A, B, C, one, two, three. And I just didn't have it. And so in my mind, I just shifted to, let me just walk with you. Let me, let, let's, mm-hmm. let's continue this conversation. This is great. I believe God is at work here in this doubt. 
And uh, he shared, you know, there's so many places where he lives, moves, and has being these days, other Christian communities that just don't give the space to work through, talk about doubt. Well, and I think this is the problem because in a lot of our Christian communities, deeply ironically, function with a lack of trust in God, Mm -hmm. right? Like functionally, we shut down people's doubts. Functionally, we tell people you have to believe to belong because we think that we have to make this look a certain way because God won't do it, right? Like we have to take these shortcuts. We have to let the end justify the means because otherwise there won't be a church. Instead of sort of saying like, if, you know, I believe that if you are leaving the community for a while, I, I have to trust that God is with you in that part of your journey, even though I don't get to control it or claim it. Right. I mean, that, and we have to be able to welcome people into our spaces without requiring that they make us comfortable or that they have life experiences that we can identify with, or really without having a reasonable expectation that their lives are going to change in a way that we would approve of or celebrate, right? Like the Christian community is a community where we can welcome people in and they can belong in a non-transactional way. Like that is the message of the gospel. Jesus comes to lay down his life, not for people who deserved it or understood it or recognized it as sacred. And it was salvific, not based on a person's obedience or an understanding, but based on the intrinsic value of the life of God. And like, if we don't think that, when the world, like we're just up on the mountain building booths while the, you know, transfiguration of the Lord is in front of our face. And we're like, yeah, I can't take that to the bank. I mean, I think that's why it's so important for pastors. I mean, and I get this is hard, but like, well, that, I mean, this, this will be connected to my, what I'm thinking about, which is the, the last session of the, um, of the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. Um, can we go out of order? Can I just go sure, straight go to ahead. Yes. Well, so I've been sort of, I mean, I have been listening to the rise and fall of the Mars Hill podcast and I sort of really, really, um, loved it when it first came out and then really got frustrated with it a little bit as it went on. And as I noticed how um, much, you know, to me, the fundamental problem with Mars Hill is not the, um, I should, we should clarify. If you don't know Mars Hill, Mars Hill was a really big white evangelical megachurch in Seattle. Seattle? Seattle. Seattle. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of what it was known for was having a very conservative, traditional, hierarchical structure and a really like first century biblical worldview of gender and like family values, right? And sort of the premise was, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say focused on two things from my perspective, focused on one, um, I'll call it quote unquote, biblical alpha maleness and Mm -hmm. two reformed theology. And their particular understanding of reformed theology. And it's interesting, like in the context of the conversation we were just having, 
I mean, it was very much, you know, people strong lines, you're in or out, you're in or you're out. You have to think these things and, and your behavior must conform to these things. And we can tell by the external, you know, the external visuals of your life, whether or not you are in right relationship or real relationship with real Jesus. And so, I mean, it exploded and then probably it exploded in Seattle, which is a very like alternative sort of community. So to find this place where people just were told like, men, you go out, you earn the money, women, you stay home, you have kids working outside of the home, whatever, it doesn't matter. It exploded and then it imploded. And this podcast has been sort of, I mean, the, the tagline is who killed Mars Hill? Like what happened? How can we understand um, why this community failed? I mean, the more interesting question to me is how did this community get so, um, so much honor and respect in the larger North American Christian community when, I mean, the other thing was there's just a huge emphasis on violence, like threatening people, like, um, you know, that this manly Christianity, meaning like, you know, get in line or I'll beat you up. I mean, literally this is said mm-hmm. from the pulpit. And, and um, what, what really struck me over time and, and was really kind of um, uh, embarrassing to me that I didn't realize in the beginning was even as they're exploring sort of what, what distortions of the gospel truth had, had crept into or been centered in this community. Um, and the main distortion being that men and, you know, functionally white men were given this privileged um, place that they had not only more rights, um, not only were they in authority, not only did women need to submit to them literally and sexually, but, um, but you know, the, like all the leaders were men. And so everybody sitting around every table sort of discerning together what is goodness and like, what's a good idea? What does faithfulness look like? What do we need to do at every turn? It was it was always and only white men around those tables, right? And so um, what was interesting to me that I didn't even notice is that in the beginning of the podcast, the people making sense of what happened are still white men. So when you're trying to figure out what, what went wrong, like the people who are trying to figure out what went wrong are clinging to the same structure that created, you know, the same set of presuppositions that created the community that imploded so spectacularly. And I'm not saying they never talk to women, but they talk to men to give like theological, um, you know, what, what theologically went wrong? What's the problem? You know, what, what are the um, spiritual problems? And they would talk to women if they talk to women at all to say like, why were you there? Or what's your experience of being a victim? So yes. men were still yeah. given positions of authority and were asked to be the wisdom bearers and women, I mean, and women could be witnesses, but they couldn't be contributors. And I just want to be clear that like the, the ugliness of the complementarianism 
the patriarchy at Mars Hill. I mean, it was very visual so that anyone who believes in a complementarian worldview would say, Ugh, like, I don't believe in that. Like, I don't believe that men should be able to, you know, use violence, threaten violence. I don't believe that we should be making fun of people. I don't believe that we should be othering people. I don't believe that we should be, you know, associating femininity with, you know, just weakness and um, lesser value. I don't believe that women have to, you know, live as sexual objects to satisfy. I mean, like, you know, people would say, I don't believe in that, which I, I understand. Like I credit the sincerity of that, but they, but what they do believe in explicitly is men have a potential and a privilege that is intrinsically in and inherently um, not available to women. And so to give men's voices more weight is not to discriminate against women. It's just, it, it's just like saying, I don't know, like I'm not going to let a blind man drive the car, right? It's just to say like, we have to have the people who have sight, you know, lead, and, and I think even people who would say, and who very clearly did say on this podcast, like Mark's understanding of Jesus and of leadership is wrong, still, even if not consciously, buy into this idea that the only people whose voices we need to hear from are the men. And the idea of just not being able to understand that, like, it's not just a matter of this one dude who I think is clearly mentally ill, um, but it's a matter of everyone else in the system who could say, I know this is wrong, but I'm still going to be a part of this because it's big, it's successful, it's lucrative. And all these people are saying, well, now I think X, Y, and Z theological premises. So that thinking or saying that they think means that they have eternal salvation. So anything else, any of the other fruits of this don't matter because we think that our intellectual ascent determines eternal salvation. And just to take that premise seriously theologically, I mean, you can't, not in whatever, even in classical Western theology, which was largely privileging the voices of white men, you still can't make the idea that we are saved by our intellectual assent to certain beliefs about Jesus, that that's, that that is the decisive factor. Like that doesn't right. even make sense within that own tradition, much less the witness of scripture. And I think, you know, it's just really interesting to me to watch that I mean, as, as a real outsider to watch people make sense of this in a really sincere way, but not grapple with, to me, the fundamental weakness, like the fundamental cause is not like, oh, we gave this bad apple too much power. The fundamental cause is you can't see Jesus in people who don't look like you. Like you can see those as people that you should Jesus minister to, and you can see them as like empty vessels to be fooled by a portion of your goodness. But like the idea that you as a wealthy, highly educated white man would need to sit down at a table, not to bless someone else, but to have your own, um, your, your own sight corrected. Like you don't understand that. So you don't understand that the reason 
that your thing went off the rails is because you didn't have any poor people sharing with you the revelation of lived experience of God that they have that you don't have. You didn't have any women saying, you can't, you know, this is harmful to me. So this is why it can't be okay in the kingdom of God. But you didn't have those voices around the table. You didn't have anybody within the LGBTQ community saying, this is how, who I know God to be. And this is how your proclamation of the gospel is harming me. So we're not dwelling together on God's holy mountain where nobody harms and destroys like this is, and, and it was really interesting because, you know, the last episode um, is like two and a half hours long. And it's all of these men who rose to, to, who rose because this is explicitly hierarchical um, model to positions of real prominence and authority within the structure. And then of course the structure eventually, like they eventually got burned and destroyed by it as well. And it's really centering their voices of like, afterwards I couldn't get a job afterwards. No one would touch me. Like I, you know, I started drinking. I you know, just, and I don't, and their pain matters. Like it, it really does. Um, but it's just so interesting that still the voices you're hearing are the fallout from the people who created the system and they're presented as the primary victims of the system. And I mean, they, again, they do have some women who they, a couple women who will give witness testimony to how they were harmed, but they're not given, their voices are not given the um, position of wisdom bestowers, right? Like, they're eyewitnesses, but they're not the people with whom we seek to make meaning. And the one um, quote that somebody said that just really astonished me is one of the men who had been a pastor, who is, I think, now not a person of faith at all, just said, I don't understand how you can take the Bible literally and build any kind of community other than the one we built at Mars Hill, which is just an astonishing thing. And it was so sincere on his part that for him, you know, and I, and just for me, like the whole episode is like watching a horror movie where like somebody leads the group and says like, I'm going to go look in every closet and see if the bad guy's hiding there. And you as an audience member are like, no, don't do that. Like, you know, just knowing that the, the thing they're missing is from my perspective, this really fundamental fundamental biblical revelation which is god shows up in the spaces of weakness in the lives of people who are dishonored you know that that jesus is gentle and lowly in heart that mary's you know mary is a, um a young girl who would have perceived to have been a sexual sinner who you know that that you know the, these models of that if someone is rich and powerful, that must be a sign that God is with them. If something is visibly successful, that is proof that it is spiritually successful. I mean, to me, this is the fundamental revelation of the gospel, but is just so missing. And the fact that a pastor could say, I don't know how to take the Bible seriously or literally without creating a hierarchical structure where a few have absolute authority over the many and everyone has to conform their lives in a certain way that matches my understanding of righteousness. Like it was just so tragic to hear how deeply I believe 
that that community, at least in the explicit teaching of the pastor they chose to follow, missed the whole revelation, not just of the gospel, but scripture in general. Yeah, and I I have some experience with um, one of the groups Mark Driscoll started um, called Acts 29. Uh, Some years ago, I was doing one of my prayer retreats. I do this thing periodically where I just get in my car and I drive for a period of time. I stop in a town, find a coffee shop, and I just spend the day there reading and praying um, and that's that's the day. That's my retreat. So some years ago, I did that, and I didn't go very far. I went just outside the city of Charlotte, uh, about twenty minutes or so. Found this local coffee shop, and I was reading a book out of the Mars Hill um, uh, church planting group called Acts Twenty Nine, and a local leader of Acts 29 was also in the coffee shop, saw me reading this book and approached me. And so we had a conversation and I was invited to some of their events. And immediately what I noticed was, first of all, I'm the only African-American. Not only that, I didn't, I didn't fit the look. There was a, there was a, um, this external culture of, Everyone had on skinny jeans, a flannel shirt, and was sporting a beard. I was like, okay, already I'm feeling a kind of way. But what really helped me to see that there was a a culture that did not welcome my perspective was when, you know, the conversation turned toward politics. So it was very interesting to me that on the one hand, there there were many things about how they articulated the gospel and preach the text of scripture, like, okay, I can get down with this, yes. But then we we just had polar positions on politics, like how can this be, which is fine, but I just did not feel like my voice was welcome. It, it wouldn't be part of the conversation, right? It, the culture was conform to this or, you know, we're sorry. Yeah, the presupposition is we have the truth and we'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. And that is problematic because it's not that there's no truth to their understanding of God. It's that their truth is by God's design incomplete and insufficient because we were made to need one another. And this to me is like the huge meaning of Paul's metaphor for the Christian community in Romans 12, when he, Romans 12, right? When he talks about the the body of Christ, like a body and to say, you know, the hand can't save the foot. I have no need of you. And the head cannot say to, I mean, whatever, I can't remember the different Bible parts, but this idea that like, it's not that the people or anybody involved in Mars Hill was worthless or what had no revelation from God or that God wasn't alive and active and present in their life. Like, absolutely. Yes. And, and God shows up in our flawed and imperfect and deeply sinful holy communities, because it's not us that makes the community holy, it's God. So that is all true. And, you know, if we can be formed by scripture enough to know that God is continually calling us to have a reverence for the outsider, those who are shamed, those who are excluded, those who are vulnerable, and that these people aren't just projects for us to adopt, but that people 
in whatever life experience group that's not like ours, they hold a wisdom and a revelation of and a truth of God that completes our own, that corrects and completes our own. Because, you know, the truth of the matter is, the simple truth of the matter is, if there had been any accountability between the people in greatest authority in that community and other, like, if there had been women in whom that culture, you know, said, your voice and your truth matters, and we're going to be mutually submissive to that, they couldn't have gone that far off the rails, right? Like if there had been, I mean, it's in Seattle, which is a predominantly white community. So they really didn't talk about racial issues at all in the podcast. And that's where I was going to go next. It Mm -hmm. seems to me that one reason that culture was able to go the way it did was because, you know, when you step back and look at how white preferences Mm -hmm. were one time, you know, front and center, the privileged position, and now um, less so, there is quite a bit of anxiety around Mm -hmm. Uh, that for white people. And so there's a lot of talk. We got to take the country back. We got to take the church back. We've got to go. It's always about going back to something. We got to recover. And it's usually about recovering a sense of power and privilege. And so it makes sense to me. And control. It makes sense to me that even in a progressive city like Seattle, that white anxiety would make room for a church culture like this. And even for the women involved, they may have been um, not as privileged as the men, but what they were offered many times in that culture is say, okay, you may not be at the top of the ladder, but you're not going to be at the bottom either because, well, because you you get to be white. And so Mm -hmm. if, if you will if you will put up with, if you will endure um, an oppression, it will allow you to be in a place where you are above others. We'll make you first among unequals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's better than being last among unequals. And I think, I mean, again, and my point on this isn't to say like, let's dog on Mars Hill because I, I mean, there's just so much pain there. And I, and and everyone's pain in that system matters, right? I mean, it Correct. does. Yes. And like the Absolutely. heartbreak was of these men who are rebuilding their life and faith after after their experience at Mars Hill. Like I I really but, but they cannot simply blame um Mark Driscoll. Right. It's and this is my problem is it's sort of like, well, the you know, and, and I, they do that. I mean, I think they do a really good job to say like, it's more than this one person. It's all of our responsibility for buying in, but what they're not naming clearly is we needed something to be big and rich and abundant. And so we took, so like there was something wrong with our expectation of how the gospel would be manifest that left us vulnerable to this exploitation, you know, like our false expectations caused made us vulnerable to this exploitation. And that to me, it's just so clear. Like you needed a mega church, right? Like you needed to have 20,000, 30,000 people that you could count. And so that meant that you, you um, co-signed on these tactics, which are clearly anti-biblical. So the problem is you had a capitalist consumer understanding of what the kingdom of God would look like in America. And it was not based on anything biblical. And so 
nobody in these podcasts is dumb, right? I mean, these are people who are especially are 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 richly understand the biblical tradition, but they're but they're missing this huge piece, which I just think if they would listen to other voices and if they were willing to experience a season of not humiliation, but humbleness in a way that they don't understand, they would have this additional portion of the truth. But what they want, it seems to me, is to say everything about Mars Hill's model was fine. We just ruined it by being too extreme in our expression of it, right? But if Mark Driscoll had been a nice guy, then it wouldn't have fallen apart. Instead of saying like, friends, this was demonic, and the reason that I know it was demonic is not because I'm a woman and it hurts my feelings. It's because it destroyed people's lives. And so we have to be able to say, so what is it that made a bunch of God-fearing, God-seeking people so susceptible to continuing to co-sign on a lie? We have to learn what that is. And it has to be bigger than like, well, something terrible happened and it's not really anybody's fault. Like, I mean, it's, I don't, I mean, it's not about assigning blame, but it is about having an understanding of what were your wrong beliefs. And you're so, so excited about being reformed, young, restless and reformed, but it was your theology that created this mess. So what did you, what, what did you miss? And how are you going to name that to say the next time we try to build a church and we look around the table and realize that everyone sitting around the table looks just like me, we're going to go danger, 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 danger. We are really vulnerable right now. And the next time everybody's in the same income level, the next time everyone is in the same ethnic group, the next time anyone is in the same gender, this is a problem because what feels good to me, what feels like salvation to me could literally be someone else's destruction. And I won't know it if I don't live with them as a brother and sister. Yeah. And the challenge for those folks is that there is a doctrine of white supremacy that is poisoning the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, and to say like, to let go of our expectations would mean to embrace a life of poverty, marginality, vulnerability, unsafety that we have been taught that God will protect us from, which is, again, crazy if you take the gospel seriously, since Jesus had none of those things. He had a power, but he didn't use it to protect or exalt himself. He literally chose to let his obedience to God lead him to an unjust death on a cross. I mean, it's funny. There's a quote of Mark Driscoll being like, Jesus isn't taking a beating next time. That was a one-time only deal. Jesus doesn't take a beating anymore. And I'm like, I mean, I get it because in your worldview, might makes right. And when a righteous person does violence, it's righteous. And that is just not, I mean, that's just not how I read the gospel. And I think, you know, if you are listening to voices, you know, of people whose lived history is, includes being the victims of colonization, you will rethink how you understand power. But if those people are just invisible to you, then you're never going to know the wisdom that they have to bring to you about how the kingdom of God comes. Anyway, I just, the, the, the quote from the pastor saying, I don't know how you can take the Bible seriously and not end up with the kind of church we had at Mars Hill. It's just, a, it was astonishing and heartbreaking to me as to how deeply and effectively misrepresented the gospel has been in North American culture, that someone 
could say that in all seriousness and sincerity. Like that's just tragic to me. Mm. So what are you thinking about? Well, um, gosh, we don't talk about sports very much on this podcast, but, (laughs) but there's a, there's a piece of news out of the sporting world that really grabbed my attention last week. Uh, you're smiling. Does that mean you? Because I think I know what it is, but I'm going to let you say okay, it. Okay, so it's about uh, Coach Deion Sanders. Is that it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I, I was born in Mississippi. I know I have a lot of relatives in Mississippi, so I know Jackson State. Jackson State is an HBCU, historically black college. Uh, Deion Sanders is um, one of the best to ever play in the NFL. He does not need the money. He does not need the fame. And he has gone to this um, HBCU to be their football coach and is having a profound effect, not only upon the football program, but upon the lives of these young men. And like recently he brought in (laughs) a social media influencer, a woman who, um, well, uh, Brittany Renner, she's 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 known in social media for um, playing. The, the, there's a game, right? That um, that there are certain there are a certain group of women who want to date athletes, and she is unashamedly in that group. Mm-hmm. And so he brought her in to talk to these young men about quote unquote the game. Right, because their their mentality is that okay, we're gonna we're gonna use these young women, we're gonna get something from them, and mainly they're thinking physical. And she's letting them know like they're playing a game as well, and they're probably better at it than they are, and they don't realize it. And so, and, and no one else is doing that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, and he, you know, he's gotten some criticism and praise for that. But lately, the, the news story that has uh, come out is that he has uh, landed the number one high school football recruit in the country, which is amazing because, listen, for years, coaches at wealthy white universities would would scout out black players um but then when football became big big money right it was all about getting these black players right and so these hbcus suffered because of that because there is still this uh psychology that we are working through that says white people's stuff is better all right And so to have Deion Sanders get this top recruit from Florida State, this well-known, very um, highly resourced institution, is a huge story. And people are asking if this is signaling something else, if this is signaling um, kind of a return to HBCU glory, does this signal... um, uh, a, a shift in African-American culture toward, oh, you know what? Uh, we are not only consumers, but we are producers. And if we are willing to both consume what we produce, 
we we benefit a lot of companies and institutions because we consume their things before we consume the things that come out of our own institutions. Uh, and I, I hope that 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 this is what it signals because it, it just bodes well for uh, African-Americans in the country, especially if we just make that shift of, you know, we make good products. We, for example, you know, I buy a soap and coffee from black companies and you, you can't buy them everywhere. You only buy them at certain stores. And I frequent those stores simply to get those products made by black, um, black companies. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool. I mean, I think there's a couple of points to clarify, like for me, I'm just thinking about how white people might be hearing this conversation. Um, the, the, you know, the larger context for this is, of course we have under- to center white people. That's okay. All right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. No, we yeah. Can. Well, what I want to do is remove stumbling blocks that I think sure, are no, I'm just, I'm just picking unique. at you. I know. Well, I mean, You're- fair enough though. I mean, fair enough. I just think that this is something that, you know, our black listeners will automatically understand what you mean. And some of our white listeners might be like, Hey, but you two believe in multi-ethnic community. So why are you celebrating, you know, an HBCU over, and why are you calling Florida state, a PWI, a predominantly white institution when there are lots of people of all ethnicities who go to Florida state. And so I think it's important to say like, what that definition, I mean, I think sometimes people call them historically white institutions, but I mean, what it means is a lot of times we as a culture have said that the best of something, whatever it is, company, school, theater, it's just, we say like, oh, well, this is just the best. Like we just know that Harvard is the best. And we don't pay attention to the fact that there was a long time in the history of this country when that was only accessible to white people and was only formed by white people. And so this sort of unquestioned assumption that we have that certain things are the best, it's important to question it. Like, is this the best because we've always thought of it as the best? Is this the best because the people who got to control the conversation and control media access deemed it to be the best without ever considering all the other alternatives that were of necessity there? Because if you were Black, you couldn't go to Harvard. Or And I think that's sort of, you know, it's celebrated as this big win when desegregation happened in this country in the 60s. And it was a big mm-hmm. win, I, I think, especially yes. for white people. I think it was a big win when we got to be in relationship with people of other ethnicities and we got our the sense of our inherent superiority that we had inherited challenged by our lived experience and community but you know it was and it was a win for people of color in the sense that they would sometimes get access to institutions that had more resources, right? But it wasn't that the segregated white school was inherently better than the segregated black school in terms of the quality of the teaching or the quality of the culture among students. And I think that's something that gets lost. And and again, like because of that assumption that we have all the time that like, well, the best teachers come from this these universities. And so in our newly desegregated schools, we're only going to hire the best teachers for all of our kids of all ethnicities. And we don't realize that what that means is we decide that that's the white teacher 
teacher. And we would say, well, that's not about race. That's because this white teacher has a master's degree or this white teacher had this experience, but it was experience that they only got the opportunity to have because of, um, because of white privilege, because of white supremacy, um, because of policies formed by white supremacy and the legacy that those have. And one of the unintended consequences of desegregation was a lot of really incredible black educators lost their jobs because their schools were closed and the new schools that were that were in the sense of getting resources and having better facilities were intrinsically better because they were separate and not equal. But a lot of these really wonderful black educators were not hired in these schools. And to this day, you'll find a lot of schools in Charlotte who have fairly diverse populations of the student body, but their education staff is all white. And people don't talk about that and what that means. And they'll say, well, this is a diverse school. And I'll say, okay, but like, what are you telling every student in that school when you cannot find a single educator who isn't white? So the people of color are the cafeteria staff, they're the janitors, they're sometimes the teaching assistants, but all the teachers are white. This is a problem, even if you can look at your enrollment numbers and say, well, the school is diverse. And, you know, also when schools were desegregated, that meant that Black athletes who previously were only able to play at HBCUs now got the opportunity to go anywhere they wanted to, which is great, but it meant that then these predominantly white institutions that were assumed to be best got, you know, the sometimes the very most talented players, which then went on to make tons of money for those institutions, thus reinforcing that gap and that assumption that the best schools are the ones that historically did not admit people of color. And the reason that we know that is because they have this and this many, you know, this many Nobel laureates and this many, you know, Oxford Fulbright scholars and that not recognizing that a lot of that had to do with what kinds of access and resources those schools are. And it's just really unfortunate that some of the athletes that could have brought in the revenue that predominantly white institutions were getting went two HBCUs ended up going to predominantly white institutions, thus, you know, making sure that HBCUs continued to not have the same level of resources that predominantly white institutions had. And so I think like, it's such a really good, hope-filled and joyful thing for HBCUs. I mean, nobody's taking anything from predominantly white institutions, but what is happening is some people are saying, you know what, you might have this lab and you might have this history of how many congressmen and presidents or whatever, but there is something um, that is incalculably valuable in the lived experience and culture of these HBCUs that I value more than the status and privilege that these PWIs continue to have. But watching, I mean, you know, I don't care about sports, but watching certain people lose their minds about this recruit getting quote stolen from Florida state. Like it's just so interesting to Again, see how in privilege, privilege, right. privilege. Right. And just how honest people unintentionally are in saying like, no, I say that this school is the best because this is a school that I identify with. And this person should have gone to what I perceive to be the best. And just being like, yeah, there's, I mean, I just think that when those expectations and assumptions are exposed and broken, that is to the benefit of everybody. And so it's not, it's not like, well, I mean, because I think there's this deep fear with white people that, well, 
there's only so much goodness. There's only so much innovation. There's only so much wisdom. There's only so much whatever to go around. And now if other people get their fair share, we're not going to have enough. And just to have that exposed and to say, you know, that kind of fear is both racist and deeply untrue. And, you know, if there's a PWI that can't survive because a historically black university starts to thrive, well, I mean, my goodness, lots of institutions have a life cycle and that's okay. And maybe there are institutions that are PWIs that are forced to do some really hard thinking and reckoning and recreating to find new ways to thrive because the old ways are close to them, then that's okay. Um, but yeah, I, do, I think it's, I've been, I've been not watching any sporting games because boring, but I've been reading the articles about it. And I think it's really interesting. Well, and, and Deion my- Sanders is talking about how, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just think the Deion Sanders quote is really interesting when he said, you know, 75 to 80% of all of these football teams have always been made up of African-American players. And who do you think has been recruiting these African-American players all along? It has never been the white head of staff. It has always been the black coaching staff who has recruited these black young people. So the fact that I can recruit this guy shouldn't surprise you because it's people like me who have been recruiting all these guys. And now you just see it. So maybe that, you know, means that we redefine what it means to be a good coach. And like you and I both know in our lived experience that it's not that people aren't interested in having cross-ethnic friendships, you know, mentoring situations. It's not that now no black player is ever going to want to play for a white coach again. That's not true, but it does mean that white people have to really examine what are some ways that I am harming this relationship that I'm very interested in flourishing And I need to know. That's great. It goes back to our conversation about Mars Hill Church. You cannot keep this culture of your institution and invite other people, other voices in. It's, It's for me, this is about both, both emphasis on the word, both building historically black institutions like universities and transforming historically white institutions like the University of Florida. And so that Deion Sanders quote is appropriate. I mean, it's it's just Mm -hmm. right in terms of helping those institutions see some things about themselves. Anytime truth is exposed, everyone benefits Mm -hmm. because we can't grow and change and become more healthy if we don't have an accurate diagnosis. But what I believe and what the gospel represents to me is that you know, the world is a place of shalom and it is possible to have mutual flourishing. And we think it's not because we've bought into the lie of the evil one that, you know, there's only enough and we have to destroy in order to thrive. And I just don't think that that's true. Um, And I think, you know, I, about being a healthy and a holy multi-ethnic community, it means not just including people so that you can use them to make your institution appear a certain way or so that they can function. Like it's not about transactionally including people, a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community includes people and invites all of them to help co-create the institution in this generation. Right. So 
I mean, I am sure that there were people of color who went to Mars Hill and there certainly were white people. I mean, women, there certainly were women and they were welcome and their inclusion was celebrated if they submitted and perpetuated the culture as it was and did not expect to have any role in bringing truth or changing or reforming it. I mean, so it's interesting that, you know, they, you know, it's all about being the reformed movement, but, but it was, we have a static view of truth that can never be touched or challenged. And they were not interested in allowing anyone to be part of reforming the community again and again. Yeah, this just struck me. It, it seems that there are so many people in the white community because I guess because of historic privilege, just really have a mentality of winners and losers. Yeah. In and outs. Either I win and you lose, or you win and I lose. And I lose. It's not a both and and I'm just thinking, so for me, um, for example, I think everyone, when you buy coffee, when you brew coffee at home. You should go buy black and bold coffee. It's it's a black owned coffee uh, 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 coffee company. Black and bold. You can buy it at Target. Not a lot of places sell it, but buy black and bold coffee. And I love going to Starbucks, as you know. It's both and. Everybody wins. Right. Well, and I do think. I mean, it makes sense that white people would have that as our unexamined default setting because even as much as we've been taught not to see white supremacy. I mean, that is the fundamental construct of white supremacy. There's not enough for everybody. Some people don't deserve what you deserve. So you are the winner. Other people are losers, but that's the way it should be. And, and at we've times, been deeply formed by that. At times it was made explicit throughout history, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think we talked last week about Barbados becoming a Republic and leaving, uh, you know, letting go of the queen of England as the head of state. Well, there have been some historians doing research and someone found a manual um, yeah. uh, written by a slave owner, a, a plantation owner, and it's a manual about how to treat slaves. And this manual says, create a hierarchy. Right. Whiteness at the top, brown people below you, and those with the darkest skin at the bottom. I mean, it's just very clear. And we live with the legacy of that. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to stop talking because we've been talking a long, long time. <laughs> so you are getting ready to record a Christmas Eve sermon. What are you preaching? We're going to look at John chapter one, uh, the word becoming flesh. And what's getting my attention this year is um, that line that says in him was life. And that life was the light of humankind. And so I just want to sit with this idea that in Jesus, we have light and life um, and what that means for us um, in this season, what that means in terms of the one who has come to save us. One of the things I've been doing in our community pretty regularly is to say, hey, salvation isn't simply go to heaven when you die. That's not, don't put a period there. There's something more that's happening in the biblical salvation language that God in Jesus is rescuing the world. Emphasis on the world, that 
that this mm-hmm. is headed toward new creation, that God is not planning to throw this creation in the trash heap of history, and we're just going to float around on clouds in heaven for eternity. No, that God is remaking this world. We don't go to heaven so much as heaven comes to earth. Yeah, and, so and let's, not let's just sit with the, that. Not just the here of it, but the now of it too, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. Jesus mm-hmm. saying to the to the other one who was being crucified on the cross, the one who turned to him and said, can I have life in you? And he said, today, 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 with me yeah. in paradise. And so there's the today, the nowness of it now that I think we, we um, don't understand. And I, what I love about is that idea of like the life, the light and the life to be able to say like, okay, but we keep seeking life in things that the gospel clearly reveals are destructive, right? So we keep Mm. seeking life in what we would call the right use of violence, right? And we keep seeking life in wealth and possessions, and we keep seeking life and identity in religion and exclusion. And Jesus, I mean, explicitly refuses to chase any of those things or conform to any of those things. And so what does it mean if we say like, Jesus, you're calling us down a narrow way to become less and less so that you can be more and more. And we can't say like, we intellectually agree with that, but we still want to send our kids to school so that they can get a job to make a lot of money and be powerful. Right? Like Mm -hmm. you, Jesus is saying like, life doesn't come down this wide path life comes down this narrow path. And we think like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And after heaven, like after I die, I'm sure that'll be good. But Jesus is saying like, no, this isn't theoretical. I'm revealing to you that this is what real abundant life looks like. You have to like try it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's really. So you're preaching Luke too, is that right? Yeah, I'm preaching Luke too, just the traditional nativity story. And I think- you know, I was talking to you before about, and it's related to what we're saying right now, um, this idea that um, we want to sometimes reduce the Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ, either to sentimentality or to an idea of like, think this about the virgin birth. And that's what it means to believe in this story. And the reality is, is you know, everything about the birth of Jesus is a sign. Um, And the question is, will we receive that sign? And so if, you know, Jesus is calling us to a life, just to pick one example, like Jesus is saying, hey, there's sheep and there's goats. And like, Goats are people who live like prosperous lives and they, they, they only help people if they deserve their help and they, you know, they thrive and they don't mess with like just dirty, poor, gross people. And, and the sheep are people who, you know, visit those who are in prison and clothe the naked and feed the hungry and welcome the stranger. Right. And Jesus is saying like, if you're a sheep, you're part of my kingdom. If you're a goat, you're not right. 
like that's a, a one expression of Jesus's teaching. And the reality is like the whole way that God brought Jesus into the world is a, is a sign, right? Like where does holiness enter in? Does it enter in from the palace? Nope. It's from the stable. Where does holiness enter in? Does it enter in through a you know, marriage that is seen as like righteous and sexually pure. No, it comes in the middle of scandal. Like where does holiness come from? Does it come from being powerful and safe? Like King Herod with the right religious pedigree? No, it comes through this like hidden, vulnerable, marginal group of people who are about to have to become illegal aliens in another country, right? So like, if you are waiting for a sign of like, well, how does Jesus want me to respond to my LGBTQ neighbor or child? Or how does Jesus want me to respond to the addict in my life who can't get their crap together? Or how does Jesus want me to respond? I mean, like if you're waiting for a sign, like, well, I know that like, if you really called me to, to, to prison ministry, then I would get involved, but you haven't called me. Like I'm waiting Lord. Like, no, no, you've been called. <laughs> like it cannot be any clearer than by saying, I am going to leave the heavenly realm and come down and dwell among you in this way, not in that way. And if you're still waiting for a different sign, like you are willfully ignoring this story, even as you layer so much like art and sentiment and tradition and song over it, like you do that to protect you from the revelation of this, which is the people that you reject and despise and ignore. These, these are the Jesus people. So anyway, something like that. No, that was a good word. You just preached that. Mm. <laughs> Let the church say, amen. Will the ushers come to receive the offering? That was great. Well, this is going to be our last show for... <gasps> That's right, 2021. 2021. Holy cow, right? the year's yeah, over. We're going to be off next week. Yes. And so we'll come back sort of the end of the first week in January. And um, I don't know, we'll do some New Year specials, but like we really, really like making this podcast. We so do. we're really glad that you guys listen. I really fundamentally can't believe that anyone listens to this podcast, but I'm like, super excited that you do so um thank you all very much it brings us a lot of joy i've checked the um, analytics there are people who listen i mean it's crazy it's i know crazy. it is bananas um <laughs> go and listen to yolando's uh christmas eve service it will be on the derida church youtube channel that's d-e-r-i-t-a prez p-r-e-s .org. That's their website. Find their YouTube channel. Listen to their podcast, the Derrida Press podcast, and you can um, experience some of Yolando's back catalog of teaching. And if you are looking for a place to be physically or virtually on Christmas Eve, um, you could also check out The Grove Church. Our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. Our podcast is The Grove Church Podcast. We got a YouTube channel too, where you can find old uh, or current messages and old messages. And if you want to worship with us online, um, you can get to that through the church's Facebook page, The Grove Charlotte. Look for the tree. We're the grove with a tree. Um, um, so thanks for listening and uh, we will talk to you next year. 